Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that this afternoon we can come, we can revel in worship, in music, and we can also come to your word. Lord, we ask that you will direct our thoughts. We pray that you will calm our minds. We ask that each of us will hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Artist Sarah Walker said that becoming a mother was like discovering the existence of a strange room that was in the house where you already live. Neurologists have shown over and over again that when a woman is pregnant, everything changes, including her neural pathways. I remember when my wife was pregnant, how everything in her life and subsequently in our life began to change. She started a new regime of vitamins that she started to take to feel stronger. She walked more. She drank more water. She changed her diet. She spoke to people on the phone about what motherhood could be in her life. And although she enjoyed the nine months of being pregnant, she always understood that pregnancy was a penultimate event. The ultimate event was the birth and the life that we would experience when our daughter arrived. Her focus on the ultimate event of the birth informed her penultimate decisions during the nine months. Now, this word penultimate is really uh, made up of two words. It's of Latin origin. The first part is pane, meaning almost, and then ultimus, meaning last. So penultimate means something which is next to last. And ultimate, of course, means the final, the last thing. And today we're going to be talking as we go through the book of Daniel on what it looks like to stand in the face of crucial moral decisions and to have both ultimate and penultimate considerations help us to navigate in our experience. Now, you may have run a turkey trot or maybe a 10K or maybe there are some really um, incredible people here who've even done ultra marathons. And if you've done any kind of race, you understand that you all of a sudden start to take a different view of your choices and your life. In view of the ultimate, which is going to be the race, you start to make different penultimate decisions in view of the ultimate decision. When you come home, you no longer just pull out your TV and start watching Netflix. You go out, you pull on your shorts and your shoes, and you run, even when you don't want to because you know you have a race. And so your ultimate consideration changes your penultimate behavior. There are some of us who have gone through these things and we realize that our focus on the ultimate clarifies our decisions in the penultimate. For some of you, it means that you are in school and yet you are still working 20 hours a week even though you are doing 14 or perhaps even 16 credits. You do so because the 
ultimate event of graduation with as little debt as possible focuses your penultimate decisions, even though it means being busy and working very hard. There are some of you who will wake up at 5 a.m. and you will take a hundred corner threes, a hundred elbow jumpers, a hundred free throws because your ultimate goal of being a great basketball player, uh, being a great basketball player, clarifies your decisions in the penultimate before you are on the court. I even think today about um, what's been happening the last couple of weeks with Takashi 69. My friend, Takashi 69 is making decisions based on not wanting to rot in jail, and so he is selling everybody down the river in the penultimate. He is making decisions about his ultimate destination based on his his ultimate decisions, and so his penultimate considerations have changed. And for all of us who are here today, well, I can't say for all of us, for the grandparents amongst us, I am certainly not a grandparent, you make ultimate decisions for your grandkids based on relationship. So when they ask you to come to a game, instead of being at home with your feet up and a hot cup of postum, (laughs) you go to your grandkids' game. When they come with scribbles and they say, look at what I drew for you, you put it on the wall instead of your precious work of art. When your grandkids say, I want to listen to this song, you do it for them because your ultimate consideration of a strong, thriving relationship with your your grandchildren clarifies your penultimate decisions about your preferences. We all do it. And today in Daniel chapter 3, we are going to see three young men who make some really clear ultimate decisions which affect their penultimate considerations. This ancient story that we find is interesting because scholars look at Daniel 3 and they say essentially what is happening um, for King Nebuchadnezzar is that he is in in a place of strife. If you go to Jeremiah 27, you will find that there are envoys coming from Edom, Moab, Tyre, Sidon, who are conspiring with King Zedekiah against Nebuchadnezzar. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he says, well, if this is the way you want to go, I am going to show you who is boss. It is an ancient sort of come at me, bro, move in gold. And so he puts together this statue, and in fact, it's such an incredible time that the Babylonian chronicles record this golden image. Verse 2 of Daniel chapter 3 tells us that the king summons the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he has set up. This image in height It's about nine stories tall. And to give you some comparison, the Marcus Whitman Hotel downtown is about 12 stories tall. And this is nine stories tall. It's a huge and impressive image. One day, and the text does not tell us this, but I imagine that the three young Hebrew uh, men are at work 
Maybe they're in their cubicles. It's a Thursday. Maybe it's Tuesday. Maybe it's like Taco Tuesday, and they get an email from King Nebuchadnezzar. And when they open the email, they see that they have been invited to a really important event on the plain of Jura. And so they put it in their calendar and they make sure that they will be there. When they turn up to this event, they realize that they have turned up and everyone is also turning up. It's essentially an ancient Coachella. It's outside, there are stages, there are musicians, there are instruments, there are A-listers, there are celebrities, and they recognize that this is a big deal. Perhaps as they come into the plain of Jura to see this image, they are given a program along with a ticket for entrance into the event. When they look at the program, they flip through, and then they see at the bottom that there is actually a warning. And when they look at this warning, they recognize that something different is going to happen. This warning is found in Daniel chapter 3, verse 6, and it says, as they read this program, Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And they realize that this is not their regular festival. And then they look, and they see an asterisk, and they read that the tickets are non-refundable, and they cannot leave. All of a sudden, these three young Hebrew men realize that something is going to happen that's going to be consequential to their life. The music starts, every single person bows, they look around and see everyone genuflecting face on the floor in front of this image, but these three young Hebrew men stand when everyone else falls. And as a consequence, because there are always consequences when you stand, when everyone else is fallen, we're told this in Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And then verse 12, it says, after, he, after they've tattletailed to King Nebuchadnezzar, they say, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then they continue um, speaking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 12. And what they say is just pointed. And then they say, And these men, O king, have not paid regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. And so right now we have the, the setup for this story. It is a case of weaponized worship because worship is now becoming a tool for compulsion and for coercion. And so they come to the king. They use this specific word when they accuse the Hebrew men before the king. It's the word akal, which is interesting because when you go and look at it, it's one of these words you really wouldn't believe is in the Bible, but it's there. And it literally means that they ate the pieces of when they accused them. And if you were to use another idiom, an English one, it would be saying that they essentially chewed them out. And so they go to the king with this bitter, envious spirit of these three minority people who are not doing what the empire wants them to do, who are not living the way that the empire wants them to live. And when they come to the king, they focus really specifically on what 
the young men are against. And I think it's a really interesting focus that they focus on what the young men are against. But the three Hebrew boys don't focus on what they are against, but they focus on who they are for. This, to me, is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So they respond to these accusations by saying, we won't defend ourselves. We believe in a mighty God who can deliver us. We love and trust God so much, we cannot be swayed to death. They go on, so we will not serve your gods. And I think it's a novel way to frame the moment of deep moral challenge that come to all of us in our life. They frame this moment not as a moment of what they are against, but who they are for. And I don't know if you've grown up in the church or what your experience has been of the church, of the Adventist church in particular, but I believe there have been entire generations of us who have been trained in rockcology. Now, you may be thinking, what is rockcology? This is a learning institution. We certainly don't have a rockcology department. Well, the reason you don't know about rockcology is because it's a brand new social science that's grounded really in this idea of behavioral and theological negation. It's about what you are against, what you don't like. So for example, if you were to ask someone who subscribed to rockology, a rockologist, if you will, tell me about Sabbath. Why do you go to church on Saturday? They would turn around and say, well, because the Sabbath is the seventh day, and the seventh day is the Sabbath. And so you must not work, watch Netflix, you must not play video games, not enjoy your own pleasure, not cook, not wash dishes, not eat out. You must keep it holy. And they would describe their posture toward the question negatively. Their version of holiness is imitated at Mount Hope and in the rock in your front garden because it's all about what they do not do. It's all about what they do not ascribe to. It is a negative and a passive religion. Rockology is a posture based on what you are against, and yet the Bible insists that being a Christian is not primarily about what we stand against, but who we stand for. And this story of the three Hebrews is an excellent demonstration of that. Although there is a denial of this idolatrous command to bow to an image, they have a negative posture toward it because they have a positive regard and love for God. Because they love God, they won't do this, not just because they won't do this. And so these three Hebrew men take a public stand, a conscientious stand, because they recognize that although faith is personal, it is not private. And I think often we fall into uh, this um, into this trap of believing that, yes, it's a personal faith, yes, you ought to work out your faith with fear and trembling between you and God, but faith, my friends, is not private. 
And one of the challenges that consistently happens when you are living um, in a culture in which it can sometimes push against your personal values is this idea that, yeah, 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 you can believe whatever you want in your own house, but it ought not to affect anything you do in the public sphere. But we find with these three Hebrews that they have a personal conviction, but it also has a public um, lived-out expression. And Nebuchadnezzar urges and coerces these young men. He forces obedience. He weaponizes worship. And then he recognizes that when you force people, when you weaponize worship, when you coerce people who are conscientiously against what you are doing, that you push them into existential defiance. You may have policies about it, You may have laws about what they ought to do, but when someone is conscientiously opposed and you force them, you push them to make tough decisions. This is the way of empires. This is the way of empires. From Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, it is all about compliance. It is about conformity. It is about capitulation to golden images which are hollow facsimiles of the real. It is about coercion. It is not about conscience. And empires have always done this from time immemorial. They have paternalistic attitudes that treat those who believe differently as wayward children who need to just be shepherded and who need to see as they see. And this is what you see Nebuchadnezzar doing, and it's always done with the threat of punishment in the background. There are, of course, troubling, contemporary, present examples that we are dealing with even within our own walls. I think about yesterday when the Adventist church in Burundi released news of a systematic wave of violence, a systematic wave of, uh, of subjugation that they were going through because of state-sponsored violence that had said that the Adventists in that place had to bow and do what they wanted and follow the leader they wanted to appoint rather than the one their conscience had allowed them to appoint. And I saw a horrific video of Adventist members in Burundi in a church being beaten by the police because they made a conscientious stand not to do what they were being forced or coerced to do. I think about Syria, which is ranked number 11 right now, is the most dangerous place to be a Christian. And I see the, the, the machinations of empire crushing those who would want to serve Christ and forcing their will. And yet you find that the more you force people to comply, the more you try to push people against the grain of their conscience, the more they resist. And you see the members in Burundi, you see the members in Syria who are standing up against compliance. And I think about the members from other territories who have also stood up when they have felt the cold hands of empire 
pushing them to do what they feel morally opposed to. So the three Hebrews are tossed into a furnace. You know, this is the children's story part. They are thrown into the furnace, and then we are told that the king sees that all of a sudden they went in with ropes, but the ropes are broken. There were three, but now there are four. And he says, one of them looks like he is one of the sons of the gods. And the entire passage is extraordinary to me. It's incredible. And yet, in light of of everything that has been happening, what I find most instructive for me is Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. If I was to take this entire narrative, I would want to focus on just these two verses as a place to learn how we might flourish and make decisions in acute moral dilemmas. So the Hebrew 3 when they answer the king that they will not bow before the image, do so with a weird, calm certainty. I imagine them just standing there with their arms crossed, with like cherubic faces, just saying, King, we're not anxious to do what you're forcing us to do. We've, we've already made up our mind. I imagine them um, in, inhabiting a space that Edward Friedman would call a sort of non-anxious presence in the face of people who are losing their mind. And they stand and they defy the king. And I think the way they are able to do that and the way we can make difficult decisions in our life when it seems the cost will be high is that they have an ultimate focus which informs their penultimate position. So although they are standing with a fiery furnace in front of them, they are looking at something else. They don't focus on the fact they're about to lose their power, their prestige, their position. They don't think about that, but rather they focus on being faithful to the God of heaven. And as I read this two-story, I want us to just think about two things, two things that we might learn about how to be in morally acute and difficult situations in our lives and to be able to make the difficult decisions, even when it seems it will cost us everything. The first is this. The three Hebrews are able to see clearly. What do I mean by that? Although they are standing on the plain of Jura, and although there is a golden image, although there are military personnel, although there is a king in front of them, they see clearly. Instead of seeing the potential for harm and for loss for them, they see the potential for the presence and for the provision of God in their life. And a question which I asked myself when I read this, really, I, I asked myself this question is, and I ask you this afternoon is, what do you see when you are faced with difficult, nettlesome, potentially that costly moral decisions in your life at work? What do you see when you have to make hard calls for your children? What are you seeing when you have to make difficult calls that would push you against the, the grain of the community that you are part of? What are you seeing? 
Because these three young men saw something different. What do you see when you come to uh, a seemingly intractable point in a friendship and you have to make a tough call? What do you see? And I think the difficulty many of us have is in that moment, we are unable to see clearly. Some of us suffer and struggle with a sense of myopia when we are trying to make a decision. We are really short-sighted. We cannot see the bigger picture. We can just see the difficulty which is in front of us. We can only see what is right in front of our eyes, and we can't see beyond the kingdom. The empire is more real than the kingdom. And so we stand and we are unable to do anything but to be reactionary, to be fearful, and to make poor decisions because we cannot see beyond this present situation. And yet, we are called to be able to see the kingdom and not just the empire. Some of us struggle with the opposite to myopia. We struggle with hyperopia, We are far-sighted, and we can only see the kingdom, nothing else. We can only see the realities of heaven. We are desperately waiting for the good, for for the event of the coming of Christ that we have no use for the world right now. We have little use of being involved in the society that we are living in. Who cares about the trees and acid rain? or river and lake and water pollution? Who cares if climate change is real or not, or if crops and harvests are being affected and people's livelihood are being dashed? Who cares about these issues of justice that, you know, these raving uh, people want to speak about? We should not concern ourselves with any of this because We are going to have a world which is going to be cleansed by fire. And why wallpaper the house when it's going to be smashed? And so we live lives where we are so far-sighted and we only think about the kingdom that we have no presence, no voice, and no influence living in the present in the empire. And both, I submit to you this afternoon, are refractive errors in how we see. And to be able to truly flourish and to be people of the kingdom in the empire, we have to be challenged and to allow the Holy Spirit to allow us to see differently, to give us a spiritual LASIK, if you will, so that we can understand that we, yes, live in the empire, and we are of the kingdom, and so our ultimate considerations clarify our penultimate positions. And then we become people who are for things, not just against. We become people who are not merely reactive to society. We become people who have a presence that is healing and that is exemplary of the Christ that we follow, although we know that this is not the end game. And so these Hebrew boys are able to see clearly. The second thing I think they are able to do is they are able to hear clearly. Although they are standing on the plain of Jura, it's hot, it's dusty, there's music, there's guards, there is um, 
a whole lot of cacophony going on in their life. They do not just hear what is around them. They can hear the summons of the kingdom of God beyond the noise of the empire. And all of us, when we are faced with weighty decisions, have to fight hard to hear the voice of God over the cacophony of our family, over difficult relationships. We have to fight hard to be able to hear the voice of God over financial considerations. And we need to say, God, what are you calling me to do right now? Sure, this is how my family has done it, for eons. Sure, this is how my church has done it for decades. Sure, this is how our department has always done it. But what do you want me to hear? And so they hear clearly. They hear clearly. They hear the call of the kingdom over the din of the empire. They hear the prophet Isaiah's bold proclamation. And listen to this. I believe this is what they hear as they stand there. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And we live today in a cultural moment where there is so much noise around us that it can be difficult to discern the voice of God. So much noise. There's internal noise because there is anxiety. There is fear of the future. There is external noise because, I mean, even your um, dishwasher needs to play like a classical tune to tell you it's done. Your microwave needs to be, you know, Craig Scott to tell you it's finished. So there is music everywhere. There are notifications on your phone. When you get to work, Outlook is consistently pinging. And so there is so much noise. It can be difficult to hear the voice of God clearly. And so if we are to be able to make good decisions, ultimate decisions that clarify our penultimate circumstances. We need to be able to see clearly, and we need to be able to hear the voice of God clearly. And in verse 18, we read that these three young men, even though they come to God and they say, we know you can save us, they still have this faith which is not contingent on God's saving of them because they've already lived a life where they've been dragged from their home, frog-marched across a desert, stripped and scrubbed of their name, given a new identity, and made to work in the place of an empire. So they know that living life and being faithful to God does not mean that you are going to have everything go swimmingly. They know that following God does not mean, well, if I'm a Christian, well, if I go to church, well, if, you know, I go to um, an Adventist institution, my life is going to be hunky-dory. It's just going to be all rainbows and skittles. No, they know that's not true. And so when they stand in front of the king and they say, we know that God will deliver us, this is not a flippant, Pollyannish uh, sentiment. They understand that following God does not always mean your life is going to be easy. 
But what they do understand and what they do believe is that the promise of God is the presence of God even in the shadow of the valley of death. And so they are able to still flourish and still be able to stand with a non-anxious presence in the face of difficult moral decisions. And you know, I wonder this morning or this afternoon how many of us, you know, we are here and you have come and you're carrying an unseen burden which is weighing you down because you have a difficult decision that you have to make. On one hand, you recognize that if you make this decision, it's going to cost you professionally. It's going to cost you with your family. It's going to cost you a relationship, but you know that's the right decision to make. And on the other hand, there is a way in which you can finesse the decision. You can say, well, it's not that important. I can just go this way. And I'm here to say that, and I say this without any sense of flippancy, that you probably are up at night, unable to make the decision because it's tough. And this story is not to say, well, just make the hard decision because then your life will be okay. It might not end up the way you want. But I implore you that when you stand in the valley of decision, when you stand and you have to make a call, that you do so in light of ultimate realities and let it influence your penultimate position. You have to understand and believe that God is going to be with you. He may deliver you from it, or he may be with you in it. But if you are faithful to what God is calling you to do, God promises that he will always be with you. And for someone else, you might be saying, yeah, sounds good, but I have no idea what I'm supposed to do, then perhaps you need to ask God to clean your eyes so you can see more clearly, to turn down the noise around you and inside of you so you can hear more clearly, so that we can be people who, although are in an empire, can still live with the values of the kingdom in service of the God that we serve.